0: Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Please visit slash not so smart for your free audiobook download. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart podcast, episode three. In the late 1970s, two scientists set up an experiment in a shopping center. And unknowingly, passers-by became part of one of the more revelatory experiments in all of the history of psychology. Here's how the experiment worked. They set up a table, and on that table they posted a sign. The sign read, Institute for Social Research Consumer Evaluation Survey. Which is the best quality? And on top of the table, they hung four selections of nylon stocking pantyhose about three feet apart. Uh, The guys behind this study, Timothy DeCamp Wilson, Richard E. Nisbet, and uh, their helpers, they asked people as they walked by if they would be interested in taking a look at the stockings and then telling them which one they thought out of the four was the best quality. Most of the people who said yes were ladies, and after they had examined the stockings thoroughly, the experimenters would ask those people to pick their favorite and explain why they picked it. After they explained, after the uh, subjects explained, the experimenters asked again, is there any reason, any other reason, why you picked the one that you picked? And some people would add more answers and some people would just elaborate on what they had said. So after all of this had been done, uh, the scientists gathered up all their data and all the explanations and they found that most people said they picked the one that had the best sheerness or weave or the best toe area. Um, They would say they liked the, the one that they chose because it had the best knit, or texture, or color, or something like that. But not one person in the experiment, not one subject, said they picked the one on the right. Which is odd, because that is exactly what most people did. You might think the revelatory part of this experiment is learning that people tend to pick stuff on the right or in a series of one, two, three, and four arranged from left to right, that people will pick four more often than three, and three more often than two, and two more often than one, which is what they discovered in this experiment. But that's not the revelatory thing. These sort of uh, findings show up all the time in experiments. If you do a taste test with two drinks that taste very similar, and you label one M, and you label the other Q, people are more likely to pick M, not because it tastes better really, but just because M is a more pleasant letter in the minds of many people over Q. it's very strange all these little things pop up in experiments these confounding variables colors and shapes and the way things sound and the way their position can actually really change the way an experiment comes out but when those things are controlled for uh, they disappear and that's just part of psychology No, no no the revelatory thing in this experiment is that they didn't tell the subjects that all of the stockings were the exact same stocking. Agilon cinnamons, to be exact. And what's amazing is that that means the stories that people were telling about why they chose what they chose were lies. We all feel like we should have access to the sources of our thoughts, behaviors, emotions, but we really don't most of the time. The source, the the influence is outside of our conscious experience and when we're asked to explain why we've done what we've done, thought what we thought, feel what we feel, those sort of things, we do readily explain those things, but often the explanation is just a confabulation. It's a lie that we don't realize is a lie. And that is the topic today. I am David McCraney. This is the you are not so smart podcast each episode we discuss a different topic in the world of self delusion and today we're talking about confabulation which is one of those things that is happening every second of every day in your life but you don't really realize it until it's pointed out or until you see it inside an experiment in the stockings experiment the people had no idea really why they picked the stockings they picked But when they were asked point blank, Hey, why did you pick that stocking? It was easy for them to come up with an explanation. They just started to make things up on the spot that they could live with. That made sense within their character. That made sense within their uh, narrative, the explanation for the world. That's really what it comes down to. You know, the narrative, the narrative that you use to explain yourself to yourself and explain the world around you to yourself. Confabulation is really prevalent among people who have had brain injuries, where um, perhaps they have a arm that has become paralyzed, and they will deny that their arm is actually uh, theirs from that point forward; that it's someone else's arm. Or um, there's something called copgross delusion, in which people believe that their close friends and their family have been replaced by imposters. So it's sort of like the part of the brain that delivers the emotional jolt, the "Mm," whenever you're in the presence of someone that you know and love is absent for some actual physiological reason, that feeling can no longer be conveyed to your consciousness. And since you don't feel that spark when you're around a loved one, you have to come up with a reasonable explanation. And for many people, that explanation is, well, the person in front of me is an imposter. Um, There's something called Cotard syndrome in which a person believes that they have actually died. And they will assume um, because they don't have the emotional connection to their own self, to their own body, that the only reasonable explanation is that they have become spirits and that they are now in the afterlife. And sometimes these people, their delusion is so strong that they will die of starvation. What all this points to is that you have a really deep desire to explain everything and to create a story that you can understand and that can be laid down as a memory that you can refer back to later. And one of the most striking examples of this that really shows how the mind works is uh, in the case of someone who's had their brain split in two. See, one of the stranger aspects of the human body is that the left side is controlled by the right hemisphere and the right side of the body is controlled by the left hemisphere. And it also goes the other way so that inputs coming in from the left side, like the left eye or the left hand, they go over to the right hemisphere and vice versa. But the brain isn't completely uniform. There are areas that are more emphasized or more specialized for certain functions and uh, the major thing, the major specialization is over on the left hemisphere, you have several areas, the Broca's area, the Wernicke's area, that are concerned with language. So in a sense, the left hemisphere is the spokesperson for the entire brain, spokesperson for the entire organism. And if it was somehow split off from the right hemisphere, it would be split off from half of the inputs. Whenever a case of epilepsy becomes so severe and unmanageable, sometimes relief comes to a patient through an extreme procedure called a corpus callostomy, in which the corpus callosum is almost completely severed. Now, the corpus callosum is the switching center for the brain. That's the nerve fiber area where the right hemisphere talks to the left and the left hemisphere talks to the right. Now, in a sense, after this procedure, a person now has two brains. And experiments performed on people who have received this procedure reveal some amazing things about intact brains. Scientists can evoke from a split brain person something called a split brain confabulation. And it works like this Remember when I said that the left eye, whatever the left eye sees, goes to the right hemisphere? Well, scientists can show a photo to the left eye of a split brain person and then ask that person what they see. But since the language centers are over on the left side of the brain, The person can't say for sure. The spokesperson for the organism doesn't have access to the photo. The photo is bouncing over to the right side. There's no language, right? Or there's not as much language. So if they ask the person to draw what they see with their left hand beside controlled by the right hemisphere, which can see the photo, then the person has no problem drawing it. And then after that, this is the really crazy part. They allow the person to look at the photo with both eyes and they will say something like, oh it's a frog. So the information that would normally pass across the corpus callosum instead is sent into the left eye, to the right hemisphere, out the left hand, then it goes into the right eye, to the left hemisphere, and then back out the mouth. So as amazing as that is scientists can also do something even more crazy which is they can show a photo to the left eye of a person with a split brain and the photo will be of something terrible like a car crash with mangled bodies and the person will begin to feel upset and icky and the scientists will ask the person why they feel this way but the spokesperson hasn't seen the photo. The spokesperson is over in the left hemisphere so they say something like, um, well I've been coming down with the flu, I think, or something. I, I think I've got an illness, or I've been thinking a lot lately about my uh, my father and uh, it's been making me feel weird. Uh, you know, I had a bad childhood. Or they'll say, I think I may have eaten something um, that is disagreeing with me, or the room is too hot. They lie. They come up with a complete fabrication because they don't know why they feel icky. Thanks to experiments like this, we now know that the human mind abhors a causality vacuum. We like to believe that we understand the antecedents to our feelings and our behaviors. But the truth is we usually don't. And that's something you should really know about yourself going forward. So, our guest today is V.S. Ramachandran, and he is just a wonderful, beautiful, fantastic man and a genius who is the world's leading expert on um, phantom limbs and on the ways that a damaged brain tries to repair itself, tries to understand itself, tries to explain itself, and his work, his findings help us uh, to understand how a non-damaged brain is also doing all those things uh, just in a less magnified way. I was able to speak to him at a wonderful conference, a really cool thing called Being Human in San Francisco. We did talk, uh, backstage and it's noisy. So the interview that you're going to hear in just a minute is, uh, really noisy. And I apologize for that. I'm going to try to get the transcript up on the website. Uh, you are not so smart.com in case you have a problems understanding what is being said. And after the interview, there will be cookies, which will make a lot of sense when you get there. But if you've heard the podcast, you know what you're in for. Um, just by way of introduction, uh, He is V.S. Wallachandran, he is a neurologist, he is the director for uh, the Center for Brain and Cognition at the University of California, San Diego. He wrote Phantoms in the Brain, Proving the Mysteries of the Human Mind, and The Telltale Brain, a Neuroscientist's Quest for What Makes Us Human. So let's pick his brain.
1: So if you have a right parietal load damage, Mm -hmm. Right parietal lobe is where you represent your body, you construct your body image. So you get different sensory inputs from the hand, and muscles and joints, and from your eyes, and from hearing, all converging on the right parietal. So if you close your eyes and stand up, you have a vivid image of your own body in space, in time. It's called your body image. When you open your eyes, it confirms your hand is here and it's moving or whatever. That dynamic internal image of your body is called the body image. And these people in the right parietal is damaged, left arm is paralyzed completely, they will A, they will deny the paralysis and B, they'll even deny the ownership of the arm because of this disturbance in, in body image. It leads them to say this arm does not belong to me, it belongs to your mother, it belongs to my mother or it belongs to my brother, to my brother right? They ask them, where is your mother? They'll say, well, oh, she's hiding under the table. Here's a person who's mentally perfectly lucid and intelligent. Claiming that her arm paralyzed, lifeless arm, on belongs to somebody else.
0: Do you, do you see a lot of that sort of confabulating about uh, different brain issues, like um, not just in um, denying that you have paralysis, but I've read about Korsakoff's syndrome and, yes, and in how, in Korsakoff, how are they related?
1: In Korsakoff's amnesia, often seen after chronic alcoholism, the person does damage to the hippocampus, but we also think the additional frontal damage as well. You need that bef- for the patient to start denying his memory issues. The profound loss of memory, they can't form any new memories. The patient comes and talks to you for 10 minutes for the first time. You introduce yourself, chat with him for 10 minutes. You leave the room for 5 minutes to go to the restroom, come back. He has never seen you before. He acts like he has never seen you before. There's very profound, uh, what's called anterograde amnesia. And yet he he's not aware of this problem. And This, called, uh, this whole disorder is called anosognosia, denial of illness. Mm-hmm. Lack of awareness, Um And could you help help me
0: and and the people who be listening to this understand what is the what is the motivation for and sort of the the mechanism of that explaining that need to have a narrative for what's going on if you don't understand it.
1: Well, I like to like I, I like to compare it with a military general who's receiving different sources of information and preparing for battle. So he's preparing to launch battle at six a.m. in the morning mm-hmm. and. 5.55 he's got all the generals lined up and all the scouts have brought him information and he says we're going to launch battle at, at dawn at 6 a.m. exactly. Suddenly one chap comes along and says this is wrong we've seen the enemy has actually 600 times not 500. hundred. are misinformed. What you do is you say shut up. You don't revise all your battle plans because it would be too costly. So you say what's the likelihood that this one guy is right and everybody else is wrong. Let me just ignore what he's saying. So this, this is what we call denial, mm-hmm. or, uh, the tendency to not accept information that's contrary to your sense of narrative. Mm-hmm. But if that chap comes and says they've got nuclear weapons, I just look at their telescope. They've got nuclear weapons. Then it'd be foolish to launch war. You say no. Let me change my paradigm. Let me shift gears. So it's, it's, there's always a push-pull antagonism between the desire to preserve stability of behavior. So it's all about creating a consistent belief system which you cling to because you don't want to veer off in random directions. You you know, if you responded to any piece of anomalous information, overreact to it, your behavior will quickly become unstable. Mm -hmm. So to avoid that, to avoid falling apart, avoid your behavior becoming unstable, you engage in all these denial mechanisms. But on the other hand, you can't overdo it. We think all these denial mechanisms is Freudian denial, rationalization, confabulation, denial, repression, all of that. Mainly done in the left hemisphere of the brain. Right hemisphere is the devil's advocate. If the, the denial becomes excessive, it kicks you in the butt and says, "Look, you're overdoing it. Better face up to reality." So what happens in anosognosia, this syndrome, right parietal damage? You see that the arm is paralyzed. The left hemisphere patches it up and says, don't worry. right hemisphere would ordinarily corrected and saying, look, don't be stupid, you're paralyzed. That mechanism is messed up. And so the guy denies the paralysis. He denies that the arm belongs to him. Um, but it's, it's, it's sort of everyday denials we see all the time. It's not unique to patients, but it's grotesquely amplified in these patients because of the damage to the right paralysis.
0: So that, that is an experience you're saying, um, it would be true to say that, that that sort of explaining of ourselves is always taking
1: place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The internal sense of narrative and preserving stability of narrative is done by the left hemisphere primarily, really, not exclusively, but primarily.
0: We're really happy to announce that the You Are Not So Smart podcast is now sponsored. And that means that you're going to get a lot more of these podcasts. And we're going to have all sorts of great guests. And we can all thank Audible for sponsoring the podcast. They are the Internet's leading provider for spoken entertainment. They have 40,000 titles plus in all sorts of genres, which means you can find something that you're really into. And if you go right now to audiblepodcast.com slash not so smart, audiblepodcast.com slash not so smart. You get a free audiobook for signing up for the service and you can get a free book. Like, I don't know. You are not so smart. Yes, it is an audiobook. Um, in addition to being a book book and you can also get, uh, our guest today's book, the telltale brain, uh, VS Ramachandran or one of 40,000 other titles. So, um, You can support the podcast by signing up, and uh, you can also get a free book in the deal by going to audiblepodcast.com slash not so smart. Okay, now it's time for cookers. Each time on the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a study right after tasting a cookie made from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader. And if I pick your recipe, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post the recipe, along with all the other recipes before this one, on the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page, and I put links to all this and everything we've talked about today up at the "You Are Not So smart.com website. So, this week, the winner is Steph Marcinkowski. She's going to get the uh, the book, the signed copy of the book. She also sent an awesome picture that I'm going to put up on the website of a bicycle made out of cookies, um, which that relates back to last, uh, the last episode. So... The study and the cookie. Positive self-statements, power for some, peril for others. Kick-ass, chocolate, cranberry, oatmeal, cookies. Now, yes, I have seen a million complaints about eating the cookie while reading the uh, study, so I'm not going to do that this time. I'm going to eat it. We're going to do a quick little snip-snip on the editing, and uh, I'll start reading the study, and you won't have to deal with uh, my uh, gross um, schmah-blah-blah-blah mouth. So... All right, here's the cookie. This cookie is, uh, it's cranberries and uh, dark chocolate chips and oatmeal uh, and egg whites and brown sugar and all sorts of other good stuff. It's going to be fantastic and here we go.
1: Mm
0: Mm-hmm, mm, yes, 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 okay. So here's the thing about this cookie. It seems at first inside your mouth that you're just dealing with an oatmeal cookie and you're like, oh, well, there you go. Oatmeal cookie. But out of nowhere, a little dab of chocolate starts to melt. And then a little chewy bit of cranberry gets in there and it all mixes together and it forms some sort of um, super group of awesome flavors that makes you um, go, I think I should bite into this immediately. Uh, following this bite, and then continue, and then not talk to the person across from me until I have devoured the whole thing. So, um, nice work, Steph. Thank you very much. This is awesome, and uh, it's going to make reading this study a much easier. Mm, thank you. So, the study we're talking about today is positive self-statements: power for some, peril for others. It's by John V. Wood and W. Q. Elaine Pirunovic. Um, God, I'm so sorry about this, Miss Pirunovic. And uh John W. Lee, so this is not a new this is not a new study um this study came out in two thousand and nine, but it's so cool And I saw it mentioned recently in The Onion, and I thought it would be perfect for the show um here's the abstract positive self statements are widely believed to boost mood and self-esteem yet their effectiveness has not been demonstrated. We examine the contrary prediction that positive self statements can be ineffective or even harmful. A survey study confirmed that people often use positive self statements and believe them to be effective. Two experiments showed that among participants with low self esteem, those who repeated a positive self statement, I'm a lovable person, or who focused on how that statement was true, felt worse than those who did not repeat the statement or who focused on how it was both true and not true. Among participants with high self esteem, those who repeated the statement or focused on how it was true felt better than those who did not, but to a limited degree repeating positive self-statements may benefit certain people, but backfire for the very people who need them the most. So what does that mean? All right. Well, here's what it means. Have you ever, um, you know, remember Saturday Night Live, the, uh, Stuart Smalley thing? Uh, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough and doggone it. People like me. It's the whole part of positive psychology that says, repeat, repeat, repeat these affirmative statements, these positive self-affirming statements. Like I'm a lovable person and those things will boost your self-esteem and you will actually become a more lovable person, sort of in the, um, realm of, uh, that book, the secret that was all the rage for a while there, where they said, if you, uh, if you want something, then just, uh, imagine it and, uh, it will appear before you magically after much meditation, which, um, and this is just my opinion and the opinion of all of science uh, is bullshit, but, uh, you know maybe maybe that did motivate some people. What this study is saying is that um, there was no science, there was no evidence, there was no empirical, um, there was no body of data surrounding this idea that if you just keep saying these aff- uh, positive self-affirmative self-affirma- uh, statements over and over again in your mind or out loud, that um it would make you feel better and then I'll actually make you become a person worthy of those statements and they put it to the test in the study what they did is they had people they had people who considered themselves to be of high self-esteem and people who are considered to have low self-esteem uh say these statements over and over again i am a lovable person and such and then they measured the participants' moods uh, and feelings about themselves before and after. And they, what they found was that the people who had low self-esteem felt worse after saying uh, these uh, self-affirmation phrases over and over again. And the people who had high self-esteem got felt better about themselves. So whatever it was, uh, it, it, your explanatory style, the thing that you use to explain to yourself why certain things are happening. Let me give you an example. Um, let's say you are in high school and you study uh, for a test and then you get the grade and the grade says uh, you make uh, an F. And you, if you're a, a person who has a, a really good self-explanatory style, you uh, positive self-explanatory style, you'll say, well, I should have uh, studied more for the test and I'm gonna study more next time and this really helps me motivates me and if you have a explanatory style that is more negative you'll say I'm a moron right um and then there's also explanatory styles where you say the teacher is an idiot and they hate me there's all sorts of ways to look at it right Uh, reality is how you explain it likewise you could maybe make an A and uh, someone who has poor self esteem would have an expl- uh, is that comes from their explanatory style might say something like, uh, Well, this is just a fluke. I probably won't make an A next time. But if you're someone who has high self esteem, you'll get that A and go, Yes, of course I got an A. I deserve this. I'm a super smart person. Well, in this study, the people who had really low self esteem were, uh, whenever they started to say, over and over again, I am a lovable person, I am a lovable person, I accept myself completely, I accept myself completely, that those thoughts provoked contradictory thoughts inside their mind that said, "Uh, that's not true, Uh, you know it's not true, and then that started to generate a feedback loop of negative thoughts that overwhelmed their positive thoughts, and by the end of the uh, experiment, they actually felt worse because they were trying to... um, say, positive self-affirming statements that they personally did not believe in. But the other people who had high self-esteem, they um, actually, it kind of worked on them. It was a very small effect, but they were like, yeah, of course, I am a level person and I do accept myself completely. So um, their suggestion, the scientist's suggestion in this is that uh, if you're a person who has really low self-esteem, this is probably a, uh, a technique that you should avoid and uh, they said, quote unquote, "Repeating positive self statements may benefit certain people, such as individuals with high self-esteem, but backfire for the very people who need them the most." This affirmation stuff and just positive psychology in general, there's a lot of debate, and there needs to be a lot more study before we can come to any kind of conclusive answers as to what works for most people. But we do know that if I was to um, if I were to ask you, um, do not think of a ham sandwich, you are now thinking of a ham sandwich. The fault is in your head and ruminating over, uh, negative things, trying to turn those negative things into positive things. It really doesn't work for a lot of people. And there might be a way of doing it that works well, but, uh, I would take the advice of many psychologists that can be summed up in sort of a golden rule of psychology. And, uh, that is you can't really think your way. Sometimes, sometimes you can't think your way to right action. You have to act your way to right thinking. I'm not sure who the source of that quote is, but I know that's true. So based off the study, be careful when it comes to self-help books and, um, people who advocate nothing but affirmative statements without a broader plan, uh, with more strategy than just that one narrow thing. That is the end of episode three of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. The music beds on the You Are Not So Smart podcast are provided by Blackguard SMG. You can find them at blackguardsmg.com. We have a sponsor. Their name is Audible. Perhaps you've heard of them. You can get a free audiobook by going to audiblepodcast.com slash not so smart. The opening music, the theme music is by Caravan Palace and the name of the song is Clash. And you can find links to everything that we talked about today and all sorts of other cool stuff at smart.com.